The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. So we've been talking about the precepts. And since this is the last uh, Sunday talk that I'll be giving here at the BSV, or here at Newbury actually, which is part of the Buddhist Society of Victoria, um, I would like to wrap things up. So we did uh, an overview and we did the first three precepts so far. And because there is five, we have another two to go. So uh, today I'll try to wrap that up uh, and still hopefully give you enough information for every precept to um, cover it fully enough. So we have um, a bit of an understanding and we have the opportunity to reflect on these things because even though it might just be five points, they're actually very deep, they're very, very uh, foundational and they're very important to reflect on again and again because sila is really what protects us in our lives and what protects others around us as well. So it is important. So the fourth precept basically is about truthfulness, but it also cuts into um, the whole topic of wholesome, skillful, or right speech. So I want to cover that a little bit today. And then the fifth precept, um, I always like to think about it in positive terms instead of what we are supposed not to do, what we are to develop, to cultivate. And the fifth precept in that respect is all about clarity, purity and uh, of the mind and of mindfulness. One of those terms that gets thrown around a lot these days. But what does it actually mean? Mindfulness doesn't just mean being present, knowing what is happening, but it also means having the right attitude having the right intention, coming from the right place. So if you separate mindfulness completely from sila, from the other parts of the Eightfold Path, it doesn't really work the same way. And very often also people think mindfulness is something you um, just you can force or you can think about and you can concentrate, like Ajahn Brahm says, he doesn't like that word. It's <laughs> um, or focus on something in a, in a forceful way. It's more something that develops and grows if the causes and conditions are in place. And then it's something which comes quite naturally. And then our job is to maintain it, to make sure we don't destroy it. And of course, to encourage it and feed it even more. Okay, so that's the two precepts we want to get through today. So let's start with the first one, uh, which is number four. And uh, for the people who have followed um, the talks before, I always used the simile of the plant there. And we started with, you know, preparing the soil, putting the seed in, making sure the conditions are right. We're actually watering that seed as well. And now we are in the process where it has already grown. So we have looked after especially the bodily actions and we are now moving into the territory of the verbal actions. And that is when the plant for me and the simile is already there. It's already grown a little bit. And now we have to make sure that we nurture it in a way that it doesn't wilter away. And the words that I um, wrote down as a bit of a summary for the fourth precept 
is truth, but truth combined with gentleness and with caring as well. Because truth can sometimes be harsh, and if it is too harsh, it doesn't really lead to the results that we are hoping for. Um, I am not trying to encourage people to not face the truth, so it does need courage, but there is ways of doing it in a way that is more conducive. And there is many, many um, sections in the suttas actually that talk about this very, very beautifully. So we are making sure in the simile that our plant gets enough light. So the sunlight is important. Uh, I'm sure you've all that done that at school, you know, the experimentation part where you have those tiny little plants and you uh, don't give them the nutrients or you don't give them the water or you don't give them the light. And they are just in the dark and they're growing really fast because they're actually looking for the light, but uh, they, they can't find it and eventually they, they won't uh, actually make it if they don't have the light. And light for me is also a symbol of truth of warmth, but also of authenticity. I think that's one of the terms that is used um, these days quite a lot as well. So the light is something which helps us um, uh, develop or open ourselves up as well, that kindness and that warmth. I was reflecting about that uh, when I was back in Bodhinyana and teaching another retreat and I was taking some pictures of some flowers. And I noticed that when uh, it was dark outside um, and I took a picture of those flowers, uh, I sometimes couldn't even find them. <laughs> and I was wondering, wow, that's, that's kind of strange. Um, but I couldn't find them because all those little petals were closed when the light wasn't there. But as soon as the light started to come up, as soon as the warmth started to come up and, and hit those petals, that's when they started to develop, to um, open themselves up. And that's the same thing which happens when we are sticking to the truth and when we are truthful and when warmth and light is part of the picture there. So as usual, I do have a couple of suttas that I've used before. Um, the first one is Overflowing Merit and it's from the Anguttara Nikaya 8th and it's number 39. I really wish to say that again and again. <laughs> Some people might be going, oh no, not again. But um, just to emphasize what we are doing here is actually a present to ourselves and is a present to other people and it is a gift. So the Buddha says here, because these five gifts are great, original, long-standing, traditional and ancient. They are uncorrupted and they have been since the beginning. They are not being corrupted now, nor will they be. Sensible ascetics and Brahmins and lay people and everybody, basically, don't look down on them. And then what five? And then it goes through the five precepts. So we are now at number four. And number four says, a noble disciple gives up lying right that is uh yes and sorry i didn't read out the other part uh, which i actually wanted to um, by doing so they give countless sentient beings the gift of freedom from fear enmity and ill will and they themselves 
also enjoy unlimited freedom from fear, enmity, and ill will. Good. Next sutta is uh, number 10 in the Anguttara Nikaya. Uh, or actually, it's in the books book of the tens, and it's number 176. And it's called With Chunda. And that usually gives you a very nice um, understanding of what the positive is and what the negative is. And for the fourth precept here, it says or for the speech, basically, it goes into all the speech precepts here, not just in, in, in the lying. And it goes as follows. So we had the threefold purity of the body, which we've gone through, which is uh, not killing, not stealing, and not committing any sexual misconduct. So now, and how is impurity fourfold by way of speech? It's when a certain person lies. They're summoned to an to a council, an assembly, a family meeting, a guild, or the royal court, and asked to bear witness. Please, mister, say what you know. Not knowing, they say, I know. Knowing, they say, I don't know. Not seeing, they say, I see. And seeing, they say, I don't see. And then most importantly here. So they deliberately lie for the sake of themselves or another, or for some trivial worldly reason and then it goes into the three other ways of speech they speak divisively they repeat in one place what they have heard in another so as to divide people against each other and so they divide those who are harmonious uh, supporting division delighting in division loving division speaking words that promote division they speak harshly they use the kinds of words that are cruel, nasty, hurtful, offensive, bordering on anger and not leading to stillness or meditation. They ta talk nonsense, it says here in this translation. <laughs> Their speech is untimely and it is neither factual nor beneficial. It has nothing to do with the teaching or the training. Their words have no value and are ultimately unreasonable, rambling and pointless. This is the fourfold impurity by way of speech. So, I think those precepts that we're looking at now, number four and number five, are the precepts that we are most likely to fall in a bit with a, with a higher likelihood than the other ones. So it's uh, the ones that we should really look into carefully and try and see what the good things are to develop and actually working on it. So for the positive part, I would like to use another sutta, which is very, very similar, and that is the Diganikaya 2, the Samanyapala Sutta, which is the shorter section on ethics. And uh, it shows this from the positive side now, when we are actually abandoning those things. So for the first one, it says, they give up lying. They speak the truth and stick to the truth. They're honest and trustworthy. They don't trick the world with their words. Second one, very beautifully said, they give up divisive speech. They don't repeat in one place what they heard in another, so as to divide people against each other. Instead, they reconcile those who are divided, supporting unity delighting in harmony, loving harmony, speaking words that promote harmony.
and for harsh speech. They give up harsh speech. They speak in a way that's mellow, pleasing to the ear, lovely, going to the heart, polite, likable, and agreeable to many. And number four, they give up talking nonsense. So again, the same word. Maybe we could also use the word idle chatter. That's another um, um, uh, translation of it. Or gossip. Their words are timely, true, and meaningful, in line with the teaching and training. They say things at the right time, which are valuable, reasonable, succinct, and beneficial. So even just having that on your fridge or having that somewhere close to you to repeat and to think about. I mean, of course, sometimes we um, do use, you know, small, small talk or we tell a joke or whatever. If, if it is really just to, you know, lift, lift the spirits, to connect to another person, uh, that's all fine. But very often, uh, speech can kind of go off the rails and uh, if we can be a little bit more careful with that, that would be beautiful. Right, and the last sutta that I usually use is from the Anguttara Nikaya 8, and it's number 40, and it's the result of misconduct. So what happens if uh, it doesn't work out, if we are not really doing it? So with lying, when cultivated, developed and practice leads to a bad destination. The minimum result it leads to for a human being is false accusations. Divisive speech, when cultivated, developed and practiced, leads to a um, bad destination. The minimum result it leads to for a human being is being divided against friends. Harsh speech, when cultivated, developed and practiced, leads to a lower realm or leads to a bad destination. The minimum result it leads to for a human being is hearing disagreeable things. And the last one, talking nonsense when cultivated, developed and practiced um, uh, leads to a bad destination. And the minimum result it leads to for a human being is that no one takes what you say seriously. All right. So, quite a lot of information there, but I usually like to go back to the suttas and to take things from there before we elaborate a little bit more on, on those things. So, one other thing that hopefully comes out of this discussion fairly clearly is that we very often do open our mouths way too early or way too fast. And if we open them up for too long, that's another thing that I uh, really value that Ajahn Brahm was saying, the longer we speak, the more there is the likelihood that it is speech that is declining, the speech that is going in the right direction and might actually, you know, um, hurt someone or, or um, irritate someone. So it's, it's always good to hold back a little bit, to reflect before we even speak. And Ajahn Sumedho has a very nice quote there. Uh, it is attributed to him, I'm not quite sure, uh, but uh, I guess it came from him. And he says, if you cannot improve upon the silence, then don't speak. 
So hopefully, I'm improve. Uh, I'm uh, improving upon the silence because otherwise I would have to shut up and finish the talk by now. But it, it is one of those things to remember because silence is something which is very very potent, and especially if that silence is connected with truth and with kindness and we take the time to reflect and go within ourselves, then we will connect with other people in a much, much nicer, in a much, much warmer way. And then um, a lot of problems um, just don't really happen. With uh, problems in the world, so often it's miscommunication. Someone heard something in this way or that way, or we said something maybe not so skillfully and it can create so many waves and so many problems that we have to um, iron out later down the track. So in that respect, it's also very, very important that we don't just think about right speech, but that we also think about right listening because a conversation is not a monologue. It's something which goes back and forth. And that reminds me of that one story where Ajahn Brahm was saying he was uh, in the monastery in Bodhinyana. And you have all those nice supporters that come and cook the food for the monastics because we are not allowed to do that for ourselves. And they offer it at lunchtime. And that's the time where we meet, uh, where we exchange, you know, that kind of gift. We encourage the uh, um, generosity that the people are showing but we are also available to have a chat with them. And Ajahn Brahm was just coming down from uh, his cave, I guess, uh, a little bit early before lunch, and we have this window front uh, that looks into the kitchen. And he said there were five Thai ladies cooking in the kitchen. <laughs> and he couldn't actually hear what was happening in the kitchen, but he could see all of their mouths move moving. <laughs> and it was five Thai ladies just talking. And he was saying, or he was thinking to himself, who is doing the listening here <laughs> when all five people that are in the kitchen are actually talking? So um, that's something I would like to focus on a little bit as well, but I will outsource that to the Monday meditation, which is tomorrow uh, in the evening at 7.30, uh, because listening is also something which is deeply connected to listening to our bodies, listening to our minds, and how we can practice meditation. Okay, so that will be tomorrow. So I can get through everything I wanted to get through today. So one other thing that happened to me in terms of um, truthfulness, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna you know, mention any specific names here, but uh, at the monastery, uh, we sometimes have jobs that need to be done. And I was involved because I do a little, little bit of work in the office in a job of uh, organizing some quotes for something we want to get done at the monastery. And uh, it was a little bit different, or difficult, sorry, I mean, um, to get in contact with the companies out there. And I'm sure they're pretty busy at the moment. But I was writing, you know, emails and, and calling and leaving our email address and leaving our phone number. And it took quite a while and I had to get back to the company and uh, said, you know, it's, it's been quite a while now and it's been two weeks and we haven't heard anything. And then I got this message back uh, over email from, uh, from that one person working there and it read as follow, follows. Sorry, I have called several times to coordinate a time and have not been able to get through. 
So <laughs> I was discussing this with one of our committee uh, members recently because, um, you know, I replied to that email and said, well, we don't have any missed calls on our phone and we didn't have any SMS messages. And I was like, am I just a little bit kind of uh, naive or as a Buddhist, do I think, you know, because truthfulness is something which is so important to me. I was like, is this person just outright lying to me? <laughs> Or is there something else uh, else to this story? And uh, the committee member was kind of smiling on the other end and was saying, well, I, I guess that's very often what, uh, what happens in the world. And that is actually a bit sad because when we start to lie or to cut corners in this way, what we are undermining is really the trust which comes through truthfulness. But I did you know, get a bit of time for myself to reflect on it. And I went like, okay, maybe the number didn't actually get passed on and maybe whatever, something else happened in the process. And I was quite heartened to um, get a phone call from that person on Saturday morning. And I was like, wow, you know, these people are still working on Saturday morning. And uh, he was uh, sharing with me that uh, his wife was in hospital and that he wasn't able to um, answer on uh, that Friday when uh, I was trying to contact the person and then of course you know I said you know I wish wish uh, your wife all the best and thanks a lot for getting back to us and we made an appointment for next week and that all worked but I was just wondering if sometimes when you have truthfulness and if the person would have just said in the email um, sorry I didn't get around to it if that was the full truth um, I would have been much uh, it would have been much easier for me I felt to to really take that and to um, not lose a little bit of trust um, in, in the person or in the whole process. But very often we don't know the full story as this um, kind of example shows you here as well. And it is very important that we do give the people the benefit of the doubt and that we nonetheless try to connect with them and then to build up that trust again. And if that trust is there, it's something very, very beautiful and something that we all want to respect in each other and that's what builds it up and that's what keeps it alive as well. So another story that I wanted to share that came to mind when I was thinking about telling the truth and about truthfulness from uh, my time at the boarding school. That's when I was um, uh, training to become a primary school teacher and I actually spent eight years in different boarding schools altogether but that was the second boarding school that lasted for five years. And in that boarding school, of course, you have people who run the boarding school. And there were three people that um, had that job. And especially with one of them, I had a, a very nice uh, relationship. And we actually, you know, uh, were friends and doing things uh, outside the boarding school and in our free time as well. And he really knew how I operated. And uh, I remember on one occasion, I think I must have been at home um, over the weekend. We usually would go home and I would call and I called him and I was feeling that something was quite quite off in, uh, in, in, you know, in my body at that time, but I wasn't sick yet. <laughs> so it might be a bit of a strange phone call, but I called him and, uh, and I said, yeah, hello and, and all that. And um, I said, look, I, I'm not, not feeling very well. And there were lots of things happening uh, in in the last couple of days and I've, I've felt it's, it's accumulating. And I actually told him, if I come to school tomorrow, I will get sick. 
So it's not I am sick, but I'm feeling I really, really need a break because otherwise I will um, get sick and weak. And his reaction was just so nice because he knew me and because he knew that I, 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 I am being truthful and that I am uh, or that I, I was a person back then who did a lot for the school and for the pupils at that school and that he said, uh, uh, okay, no problem. <laughs> um, we will, we will, um, we will write you down as sick. And I think that is something quite different from some of the things that were happening at the school where people would say, oh, well, I'm sick. And then they would go, uh, you know, um, for a couple of days to Paris or something. <laughs> I remember that's one thing that happened. So it, it is really worthwhile and uh, important to have that truthfulness because that is something that leads into trusting in other people, but then also trusting into yourself. And that was uh, something which I felt is all almost a little bridge as well now, as we are moving from the fourth precept of truthfulness to the fifth precept, which is more about mindfulness. These days, we are often running around so headlessly or we have so many things to do so many things that burden our mind that kind of um, uh, becloud the clarity of our mind that we don't really know what's going on in our bodies and in our minds and that we don't pick up when our bodies and minds do actually need a break so that is the little bridge here for the next precept. And I would like to carry on with the um, simile that we've been using here. So now hopefully the plant has grown quite nicely because we've looked after it. We've made sure that the bodily con conduct is pure. And we have now also hopefully gained a little bit of understanding and training in the verbal part. And now we are moving more into the mental part with mindfulness and the two words that kind of come to mind for me or that summarize it are attention and intention and what those things do with the, this little plant that is hopefully coming along happily by now is that they protect that plant so you have to get all the causes and conditions into place that things can grow and develop that they are watered, that they have the light and the kindness there. And now comes the part where we protect our little plants, that they don't get harmed or that we don't lose what we have gained. Uh, and that is the same with mindfulness there. So we protect and guard our plant. In terms of the fifth precept specifically, that means that we are abstaining from liquor from wine and from intoxicants, so from non-medicinal drugs. And why do we do that? We do that because they are the basis for heedlessness, it says in the suttas. What does that actually mean? So it means whatever substance, and I would like to even say whatever behavior, it doesn't even have to be a substance, which beclouds and confuses our mind. So that is the negative part where we can get drawn into if we are not careful. And the positive side of this is being sober, 
is being sensible, is being clear, is being pure, and in being mindful. So if you know the Buddhist teachings a little bit, or if you have, for example, also read the Dhammapada, you will know that the mind is the forerunner of all things, and that the mind is something which is very, very important. And we want to make sure that we are protecting that mind, that we are making sure the mind is clear and we are not dragging it down into the wrong place. We are not dragging it down into darkness. We are making sure it goes towards the light so that we have the clarity that is needed to really know what's going on and to act in the right way. So in terms of um, the sutta that we usually use here, which is again um, the results of misconduct, which is Anguttara Nikaya 8, um, 40, and for alcohol, for the fifth precept, what it says here is uh, the following. Taking alcoholic drinks that cause negligence when cultivated, developed, and practiced, um, lead to a bad destination. The minimum result it leads to for a human being is madness, is the word that is used here. So it's like a temporary insanity. So sometimes when Ajahn Brahm talks about ghosts and people talk, uh, ask him about ghosts, and if he has seen ghosts, he says, well, <laughs> I haven't seen the ghost, but I have seen the causes of the ghost being around. And what kind of ghost does he talk about that makes people crazy and mad? He says, it's the ghost, it's the spirit in the bottle. When you drink, especially too much of it, it takes all your clarity away and uh, your mindfulness away and you are much more likely to do things that you wouldn't do otherwise if you were sober. So I would like to use a few statements here. I personally have very very little experience with alcohol um, and none with drugs so it's a bit hard for me to connect to that fully. Um, so I would like to use what other people have said about the use of alcohol. There is a program on ABC which is called uh, You Can't Ask That and it's a program where um, people from a certain um, group uh, get asked lots of questions that other people have um, sent in uh, online and it's very very nice to see how openly and truthfully they, open, uh, they, they answer the questions and because they do it so openly, it's something, especially for me at least, I don't know if you've seen the program and how it works for you, um, it really goes to the heart and you can really connect to people that you otherwise maybe wouldn't be able to connect. Right, so the people who um, had problems with alcohol, who were speaking on that program, were giving the following statements about basically what alcohol can do if you are filling the void with alcohol or if you are numbing the pain. And that is, of course, not just alcohol. That can be any other drugs 
or again, as I said, any behavior which becomes an addiction. So they said, the alcohol masked the pain. I drank to numb my sorrows. Alcohol gave me confidence. And that is something that I heard, especially with people in social situations where they didn't really feel um, very confident or very secure or very nice in that environment. And they realized when they would take alcohol that it would give them um, confidence in that situation. It became my fix. It gave me a little pick-me-up and my worries went away. I drank to black out and not have to face the world. So that are a few reasons why people would get into um, taking drugs or drinking. Of course, there comes, you know, the, the, the good things that are connected with it. Well, I mean, the good things, <laughs> the things that might appear pleasurable, of course, as well. And then when they were talking about the consequences, though, which is another important thing to reflect on, and they were saying, I lose trust. So alcohol will eventually, if it is something which is habitual, make you lose trust, make you lose trust in yourself, make you lose trust in other people. And as I was trying to um, say before, trust is something so important in relationships, in being able to communicate with each other, to live with each other, to be with each other. So you lose trust. You let your family and your friends down. Other words that were used was manipulation and isolation. You don't know what happened. You don't know what happened last night, for example, or you don't know really what happened with your life. You started to um, get involved in a certain habit and your life just kind of goes off the rails and goes in a direction that you don't really want it to go into. And then the other thing, which I found was very important as well, drinking and driving is unfortunately very common. When you are drunk, you don't think of the consequences. So there is many, many things with drinking that can be quite dangerous and where we have to be careful. Another thing that I wanted to share with you, a story that I often like to bring up when we're talking about um, addiction, which is basically the opposite there of being mindful and of knowing what is happening, it's a conditioning that leads you down a dark alley, is the story of the little prince. Uh, I don't know how uh, well known it is over here, but uh, over in Europe, because it's uh, a French uh, pilot who wrote uh, the story. His name is Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. <laughs> it's a very, very nice story. It's actually a story for children, but it is written in such a way and has so much wisdom in it that it is really more of a story for adults, but like written like a children's book with um, paintings uh, or drawings that go along with it. And it's this little prince that somehow stumbles onto this planet on the earth and uh, meets this pilot in the desert who is, who is stranded with his plane. And he tells him about his journey of coming to this planet and he goes 
from one planet to another planet to another planet before he actually reaches the Earth. And every planet has its character on it. And one of those planets has a character on it, which is the drunkard, the tippler. So the story here goes as follows. Uh, what are you doing there? He said to the tippler, whom he found settled down in silence before a collection of empty bottles and also a collection of full bottles. I am drinking, replied the tippler, with a lugubrious air. <laughs> Difficult word there. Why are you drinking? Basically with a sad, uh, sad uh, uh, voice. Why are you drinking? Demanded the little prince. So that I may forget replied the tippler. Forget what? inquired the little prince, who already was sorry for him. Forget that I'm ashamed, the tippler confessed, hanging his head. Ashamed of what? insisted the little prince, who wanted to help him. Ashamed of drinking. So that story really vividly shows you this sad cycle that can happen if we get involved with alcohol and drugs and it does become an addiction that we can spiral down in it and we are actually <laughs> perpetuating the whole situation. So with these substances you get a little bit of a hit, you might get a little bit of uh, something out of it but you are trying to cover over something in your life and whenever the substance wears out that's when the truth comes back up and the truth at that point is so difficult to bear so that's why it is so easy for someone who's used to a certain pattern of behaving to fall back into it again and again and again and then the um, habitual pattern itself the drinking of alcohol or the taking of drugs becomes something we are ashamed about and we're using the same substance to cover up that shame again. So it's, it, it is really a vicious cycle there that um, is to be avoided, if at all possible. For myself, um, when I was going through, uh, you know, being a teen and all these kind of things and being exposed, of course, also to, you know, people smoking and drinking and taking drugs and all that kind of stuff, Personally, for myself, I don't really know where it all came from, but I was mindful enough to take a step back and to look at the situation and to look at the people engaging in those um, behaviors before I would even be tempted to try things out. And by seeing the consequences and by seeing where it actually leads to and what it does, I think I must have already had an understanding there how important the mind is and that with these behaviors and these substances, we are taking the clarity away from our mind. So, but the other thing which really struck me, I, I did go, you know, to some of those parties and things, uh, not to that many, <laughs> but every now and then I would go along and what would strike me again and again and what would be the pattern of thinking in my mind would be I'm seeing all these people and I'm seeing those people behaving in a way that looks like they are happy in some sense. But I always had the question in the back of my mind, are these people 
really happy. And whenever I asked myself that, whenever I tried to connect to the person behind all these kind of behaviors, it all seemed very, very empty and very, very fake to me. It just didn't have that substance that other behaviors would have. It wouldn't have that uplift that other things would have. It wouldn't give the mind um, the energy, the same type of energy. And that's why I wasn't really interested in even trying it out. And of course, because I was often in the role of, you know, being the good Samaritan or in, in being the person who looked after the people who, who actually had too much, too much alcohol to drink, it, it never really appealed to me. But another thing that I was reflecting upon when I was thinking about, you know, mindfulness and, and drugs and alcohol is I really liked to do acting in the past. That was one of the things I, I enjoyed you know, to slip into different roles and to be on a stage and, and learn my lines and, and, and try to bring something across to other people and to touch them with whatever was, was played. But then I was also reflecting on, even with drama, even with theater, you are kind of creating something. And that is the same thing which happens in a nightclub. You are trying to create something there. You have the lights, you have the music, you have the clothes, you have the colors. And I don't know why, but for myself, it never grabbed me. I just, I just saw, okay, it's lights, it's music, it's, it's, it's clothes, it's colors. It's, but it just never had that reality punch to it that truth has to it. And I realized it's all created. So if you think of it, what happens if you go to a nightclub when it's day? <laughs> if you go to a nightclub when all the lights are off, when the music is gone, when all the emotions that are created through those conditions are gone, it's just an empty room. And for some reason, the room was even empty to me when I was in there, you know, I, I wouldn't expose myself to it a, a lot because I didn't really like it. But when I did, you know, loud music, you can't even talk to another person. <laughs> you, you don't hear what's going on. A big crowd, you have light and sometimes, I don't know, smoke and all, all, all sorts. And it just, it, it just didn't, didn't grab me. And it's the same thing with a stage. If you imagine a stage, without any actors, when it is just empty, when you don't have the music, where you don't have the set, where you don't have the props that bring on all these emotions and the energy, then it's fairly empty. <laughs> out, out, breathe, candle, life is a stage. <laughs> it just reminds me of, of uh, uh, ah, uh, no, 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 what's his name? Uh, Shakespeare, thank you, there we go. <laughs> anyway, right, so just a little bit of kind of what happened for me. And another thing that I was thinking about when I had those thoughts going through my mind is Ajahn Chah speaking in the back of my mind there as well. And one of the sayings that I find quite important that stuck with me from Ajahn Chah is don't follow the moods of your mind. So what these things are creating are a certain fleeting mood that comes, peaks, and then goes out again. 
So instead of following our moods, we have to trust in the process uh, of meditation and of Buddhism and of carrying on with our practice, no matter what those moods might be that blow through our lives and that are created in movies, in nightclubs, in wherever it is, <laughs> these things can evoke emotions. And emotions are very, very important. But it's uh, important how we deal with those kind of emotions. And there is something which is underlying um, or is, which is much, much more deeper than an emotion. And for me, that are the words of an attitude or of virtues, for example, that is a foundation which is much more solid, much more long-lasting. It's still impermanent, of course, but it's not this blip like the blip of an emotion or a feeling that might be created and then disappear again. And that's often the same thing as well when I'm talking uh, about love, about meta. And I actually did my, uh, my thesis <laughs> at the teacher training school about love. And love is not an emotion. Love is, I mean, it comes with all these things. I'm not uh, trying to deny that, but love meta is much more an attitude than an actual fleeting emotion. And then when I was reflecting about that, I realized there is a real happiness. There is a real connection you can have to your emotions, your attitudes, your virtues, to other people, um, but it is very, very different. And it is so much more meaningful and dare to use the word real than it is the interactions we might have in a kind of a party situation, for example. Very often uh, when people talk about um, addictions or behavior patterns that we might get into that are not so wholesome, it, of course, it's the same thing with the wholesome ones. They say it's like you are bonding with something. So our brains, our minds are geared in a way to bond. We are social beings and we bond to the people around us. But we also bond to the emotions and the attitudes um, that are happening around us. And so if we can make sure that we are bonding with positive, constructive people, and the positive and constructive emotions, attitudes, and virtues, and also with the positive um, behaviors and habits that will lead us in the right direction there. So instead of getting a cheap thrill, we are getting a deep fill. And what came to mind for me there is this um, opposition of the two things of borrowing energy, as the Buddha calls it, with sensual pleasures, versus generating energy. And what just came to mind, I don't know if it actually works, but let's see, just go for it, is with when we're trying to generate energy in this world, there is different ways of doing that. So there is the so-called dirty energies, and they're the so-called, or maybe they're not called dirty energies, but let's call them that way this now, and the clean energies. So the dirty energies are the ways where we are exploiting um, something to get energy out of, 
and we have a lot of waste products that come with it. So if we think about nuclear power, for example, it is a very, very easy way to get a lot of energy in a quite short period of time. But we get a lot of waste products that we have to deal with, that we have to hide away, that we have to bury somewhere. Or we use coal. We get the energy out of the coal, but in the process of getting the energy out, we are creating pollutants. And they go into the air and rah, rah, rah. I don't have to tell you that story. But that was a simile to me what it means to borrow energy. You get the energy out. But you have to pay for it afterwards. It's not free energy. It's not clean energy. But when you think of the energy that can be generated in a clean and in a, in a way that um, is good for the environment and is good for the people living on the planet with water, for example, with wind. I mean, uh, of course, we have to build something to get the energy out of the water and we have to have, a you know, uh, the, the windmills and all that. So I'm not saying it's completely, you know, nothing is there, but there is so much less things that we have to take care after having gained that energy. The same thing uh, I've seen very nice ways of um, uh, getting energy from the waves or even getting energy from the tides of the water or getting energy from the sunlight. Of course, this simile is not perfect, but I think you are starting to understand where I'm trying to go with this. So the clean energy is an energy that is created, but it doesn't have the waste products that we have to deal with. And it is actually something which is very, very similar in a mental kind of world, in a mental way. So Ajahn Brahm very, very often talks about mindfulness, talks about sati, and says it equals mental energy. So what we are building through keeping the precepts, through living in the right way, through uplifting our own hearts, is we are actually um, charging the batteries. We are charging our batteries that are low. And very often, if our batteries are low, we might be tempted to give them a boost with things that give them a little bit of energy, but then they run out. And this mental energy is something which is much, much more sustainable and much, much stronger as well, much natural, much more truthful. So what comes with this, though, is the purification of the mind. So if we are using the wrong types of energies, we are putting that pollution and we're putting that smoke, that mist, that whatever uh, you want to call it, into our minds and it's taking away our clarity. So sila and acting in the right way is in itself a purification of the mind and that is what gives the mind energy and once the mind has that energy whatever it sees will be beautiful whatever it sees will be clear and will be less obstructed by our own defilements by our own lenses that we otherwise would have uh, uh, when we act so drugs and alcohol are often just a way to hide, numb, or as they say, medicate or cope with unaddressed problems which are lurking in the dark. So in Buddhism and with meditation, we are encouraged in a very, very gentle way, in a soft way, in a kind way, to bring light 
to bring kindness, to bring acceptance and understanding into that darkness. And that is the way how we should be practicing. And that will help us to wake up, to step out of that fog and to step out of that mist. So when we are talking about the two words that I mentioned before, attention and intention that come with this, whenever you feel that there is a tension building up in your mind or in your body, that's when you can remember the words attention and intention. And whenever the tension is there, we attend with tenderness and we intend with tenderness as well. So we open our arms and we open our heart, but we don't let go of our values in that process. And another very nice term that I've heard other people use in that respect is having a soft front, but having a strong back. So you do open yourself up, but you're not just this kind of blubber pudding or whatever. You have a strong back that supports all that. You have a strong ground to stand on. And that's from where you're operating in uh, this world. Okay, next thing I have here that I wanted to touch on is, of course, what leads us into the territory of right intention and of right motivation. And of course, that would be a whole talk in itself. But just quickly to mention, Ajahn Brahm calls those three right sankhapas, the three right intentions, making peace, being kind, and being gentle. And if you think about it in a slightly different way, it is all about renunciation. That's actually, I think, the more accurate uh, translation of nekamma sankhapa. It is about kindness and about love, which is abhyapada sankhapa, and about harmlessness. And harmlessness is the core of all the five precepts that we have been talking about. That is the avihimsa sankhapa. So, giving up and renouncing is something which is encouraged. But it is important that we don't just give up and renounce, but that we also encourage and replace. And that's why the virtues and the precepts are so important, that they can take a place of the behaviors that are not so good to replace them. Otherwise, we are kind of there empty-handed or we lack this strong back that I was talking about before. And the Dhammapada verse that has stayed with me for years and years and years now. I think it kind of surfaced when I was 21 and ordained for the first time in India. Uh, that's Dhammapada verse 290. And the translation from my first preceptor, uh, Acharya Buddha Rakita, goes as follows. If by renouncing a lesser happiness, one may realize a greater happiness, let the wise renoun the uh, renounce the lesser, having regard for the greater. So it is a process of replacing. So we don't end up with empty hands and empty hearts. We actually start to build up something um, wholesome and uh, something which has a lot of energy there. Right, I'm seeing I'm 
running out of time pretty soon. Let me just mention one or two things. I, 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 I see here I've been focusing mainly on the mindfulness here a little bit more than the speech, but we just had to go get through all this. One thing that I just wanted to mention is as a teen, I was part, or also as an adolescence, I was part of a group in uh, Switzerland. And uh, again, that was connected to the boarding school leader that I was talking about before. And he called the group Lümmel, uh, which is uh, a bit of a word which which means something like someone who's a little bit cheeky. <laughs> um, but it's an acronym that st uh, stands for in German, Lauter übermotivierbare Leute. And if you translate that into English, it means a bunch of people who are easily uh, motivated. They're actually overly motivated. And we would do, you know, crazy things like go and um, uh, uh, walk around the lake three or four times the, the whole night or whatever it was, or just, you know, camp together and just have a good time together. But the nice thing about that group was that no drugs and no alcohol were involved. For me, it was very natural because I didn't, you know, um, gravitate towards those things anyway. But for some other people who got in touch with the group and kind of saw how the group was operating, were able to drop their habits, at least for that time, and then maybe even drop them entirely through being able to have trust, friendship with a group of, of, of like-minded people, and I think another important part was the physical activity. You know, we had snow camps once a year and we would build like huge igloos and sculptures and God knows what. And one of the things we used to do is we, we, we wouldn't just take the train to the place that we would go up in the mountains. We always had a group of like hardcore people that would get on the train and then get off the train. I don't know how many uh, 25, 30 kilometers away from the actual place. And then with the shovels and with the snow, snow boots and with the big backpacks and everything, we would be hiking there through the night. <laughs> One time we even spent a night outside when there was still another part, um, another person or another group in that house because we arrived early. But it's such, uh, so fond memories I have of that time. And I realize when I'm reflecting back on this, that this was something which gave me a replacement of a lot of the other things that I might have gotten into, who knows, uh, which would have been much, much more, well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you can say what we did was stupid as well, but it was kind of stupid wise <laughs> because we were just messing around as, as young people do, but in a wholesome way without uh, getting into trouble. And one other thing I wanted to mention is, of course, my godmother, I think, uh, had quite a strong influence on me as well for my whole life. Uh, I met her when I was five uh, as a very little boy, and we had a connection since then, and she's been supporting me as a monastic as well. And one thing that happened when I was roughly 12 years old is that we made an agreement. She saw that I was a person who was, you know, looking after my money quite well <laughs> and uh, working and then, you know, going on holidays every now and then about half of my time I would spend uh, overseas traveling, half of my holidays, like school holidays. So um, she made an agreement with me that I wouldn't um, be 
uh, wouldn't get caught drunk more than three times, uh, wouldn't get caught smoking more than three times, and wouldn't take alcohol or drugs. Uh, but that was, uh, I think, I think at all. To, uh, don't take them at all. I don't think it was so difficult <laughs> because I wasn't that tempted anyway. But it definitely gave me an incentive. And she said, if you do that until you are 18 years old, I'll give you a thousand bucks. And a thousand bucks was was quite a bit of money, actually. <laughs> so then um, we had like an agreement that I don't know if we actually wrote it out. It might have been just a spoken agreement. But she told me over the years now that that was the agreement she had with her own father. And I now have the same agreement with my godchild. Uh, when she was 12, we made that agreement and she is 16 now. And as far as I know, she has been honest and has been keeping um, to it. So uh, I think that is something very, very nice that now has carried on over three generations and which gives you an example how you can renounce but also encourage and uh, uh, what was the other word I was using? Encourage and replace something um, which is much more wholesome. Good. One last thing that I want to mention, hopefully... Uh, the question is not there, but if it's there, I can answer it now. Because one of the questions people often have is, well, you know, we live in Australia. And in Australia, you go um, here and there and you, with work and not drinking any alcohol of all, all, at all. Come on, you know. <laughs> so um, what I would like to offer here is, again, one thing that Arjun Chah has offered in terms of thinking about uh, consuming alcohol is... Just think of your beautiful, nice house where you live and you're safe and you feel sound and you feel okay. But what would happen if you knew there is a person out there who is a burglar? It's just kind of a, you know, um, occasional burglar. It's not like the big criminal or whatever. But he or she every now and then just kind of takes a few things away and you realize when they've been to your house, things have gone missing. Now, even if they would just steal a little bit, do you think you would like to have them in your house or have them come and stay for a whole weekend maybe and look after your place while you're away? Just as a little reflection. And that's what often happens when we think about the fifth precept then. We kind of go and say, well, you know, a little bit of drugs and alcohol every now and then. Mm, yeah, maybe, why not? A little bit of lying here and there. Mm, okay, a little bit of adultery, you know. A little bit of stealing and maybe a little bit of kill killing, really. <laughs> if you really kind of think about it, what very often happens is we have habitual patterns that start to build and that start to build momentum. And there comes a point where the momentum is so strong that conditioning takes over and we don't really have control over it anymore. So I encourage you to be uh, reflective here and to be kind and careful and to have compassion for yourself and the people around yourself. And if I have planted a little, little seed in your mind with this talk, I do encourage you to watch a program uh, from ABC. It's called Ask the Doctor. And it's about half an hour uh, program, which talks about the risks of alcohol. 
And very often, if we have those risks clear in our mind, it is easier to give um, some something up. But then again, as I mentioned before, don't just give it up. Please make sure you encourage wholesome behaviors and replace the time you would be spending with doing these less wholesome things with more wholesome things. I think uh, for the people who have access to the live chat, actually have a link there. But I'm sure if you um, Google it, uh, ABC, uh, Ask the Doctor Alcohol Risks, you will be able to find the program. It's a program that was made uh, two years ago, I think. Okay, good. So let's wrap up. I would like to wrap up all the precepts together now because we've been talking about all five of them. And there is one sutta which does that very nicely. Uh, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya 5s. 179, sorry, so many so many quotes here, and my son is typing it all in, <laughs> sending it to you. And it goes as follows in Ajahn Sujata's translation. You shouldn't harm living beings as far as that's possible to do, nor should you knowingly speak falsehood or take what is not given. Content with your own partners, you should stay away from the partners of others. A man or woman shouldn't drink liquor or wine as they confuse the mind. And again, please uh, think about the precepts in a positive way. So think about harmlessness, generosity, friendship, truthfulness, and mindfulness. And another literary encouragement, because very often people get inspired uh, by a talk like this or, you know, something happens in their life and they're like, yes, I really want to do this. Uh, I want to become a better person. Let's go for this. They have the inspiration and if they're not careful, it turns into expiration on some stage. <laughs> so a little bit of encouragement for you in general on practicing the five precepts. What I really like is um, Professor Carol Dweck has described something which is called the growth mindset. And the growth mindset is something which is the opposite of the fixed mindset. So let's explore that a little bit. So it concerns your beliefs, it concerns the effort you put in or you don't put in, the challenges, how you see making mistakes and how you deal with feedback. So if you have a fixed mindset, the sentence that might be going around in your mind might be, I'll never get it right. But if you have a growth mindset, you will realize, I just haven't gotten it right yet. I'm growing. There is a possibility if I practice to actually get to that point. It's not something which is either there or not there. It's something which can be practiced. You might think, I'm not good at this. But instead of saying, I'm not good at this, you might ask yourself, what am I missing? What are the resources that I need to be able to grow in this area, to learn in this area? You might think, I can't do this, I will give up. Instead of thinking like that, think, is there another strategy? Is there another, pro another approach? Can I gain a little bit of perspective? Look at it from another angle, flip it around slightly. 
Or you might think, oh, this is too hard. Don't ask us to do all these good things. It's just too hard. Instead of thinking like this, see it as a challenge and uh, understand it is something which takes time. And then if something goes wrong, of course, you might think, oh, I made a mistake. Oh, I'm useless. Oh, this is useless. Instead of thinking that way, think mistakes help me learn. And they mean I'm a step closer to actually reaching what I'm reaching for. And as I said, it takes time, it takes practice, it takes skill. It's like learning a new language. You can't learn the new language overnight. You have to drum in the vocabulary. You have to expose yourself in situations with people who speak that language. You have to make mistakes, but then you learn along the way. So what Ajahn Brahm often encourages people to do is to fail forward. It is inevitable that we will fail. But instead of failing and basically just becoming inactive, not doing anything, fail forward until you get it right. Don't give up. Think of a child which is learning to walk. If they would give up, they would never be able to walk and run and jump and whatever. They have the energy. They have the stamina. And then most important of all, this child simile, think of your shortcomings as cute or as funny. Because if things happen, especially if it's with your own child, of course I know it, there will be times where, where you don't think that way, but it is much, much easier with an animal or with a young child to think about shortcomings or mistakes in a much, much more kind uh, and soft way. Okay, right, we got through four and five, and there might be lots of questions. Ooh, let's see <laughs> what we can do. Or maybe I've answered a few of them already. Hmm. Thank you, Bandai. So are you ready for the questions? Uh, yes, yes. Let's see how much we can do. Okay, actually, that's, they're not too bad. Um, okay. Two main questions. One yep. is on alcohol and one is on speech. Which one right. would you like to ask Uh. Uh, let's with? let's start with speech because we did that first maybe sure the speech yep in a conversation what to do yeah first if the other mind uses harsh speech yes second if the other mind stops harsh speech only when my mind responds in a more harsher way right yes so there is, of course, different ways of dealing with this. And also it depends on the situation. And uh, I mean, how long, you know, the re relationship has been going on or if it's in a workplace where it's, for example, your boss. And unfortunately, you have, you know, a certain kind of imbalance of power there. But we don't really have to tolerate harshness. So if at all possible we try to you know steer around it or make sure we calm the whole situation down or we walk out of the situation that's what i would suggest as a first way of trying to deal with it but of course sometimes the situations carry on and on and on and on and then there is a certain force which is required to stop whatever is coming at you in their tracks but the very important thing here is you don't want to have force against force that's one of the things i was trying to explain to even the little kids <laughs> when i was teaching i was saying you know if you have this tit for tat 
thing happening and someone is applying force and then more force comes for the other side more force comes again basically what happens you end up in hospital <laughs> if the two parties are willing to just put on more force and force and force and force so if the force comes it has to be very pointed and it has to be very quick and uh, uh, kind of on an impersonal level so that you don't get sucked into this kind of whole uh, situation of being in a battle <laughs> because if it if it goes into battle mode then you've basically already lost it and for myself what I realized is I always thought if I went into a situation like that I will try to take the wind out of the sails of whatever is happening on the other side so that that anger and that energy and that harshness can be made soft and if power is required I always told myself I'm not willing to go as far as maybe someone else might be uh, willing to go and I would lose <laughs> so then I would rather pull back and walk out but sometimes as I said uh, you can apply a little bit of force the simile that comes to mind here that I often use in that respect is the um, potter and with pottery they uh, have a clump of uh, whatever it's called clay and you have to form that clump of clay if you don't have any force at all any firmness at all it it will just stay a blob but you apply the force in a way where you use your fist to apply the force but you also use your hand um, which is behind it which kind of takes the blow um, to form whatever is in between so you have the kindness and the compassion and the understanding and you also understand it, it is the right time and it is truthful and it is um, beneficial then you can apply a little bit of force but please do it very very carefully uh, very kindly and very often when I um, uh, when you deal with kids or with disabled people as I did in the past uh, or even you know with with people in the monastery you try to point out whatever you want to point out to make your point but then retrieve don't don't stay in the battle and don't go back and forth and insist on whatever you want to get just point out and then go back into kindness mode and that's often what uh, I've also used is the KFC principle <laughs> which doesn't have anything to do with KFC uh, but uh, Ajahn Brahm often calls it the sandwich method so KFC kind firm and caring so you have the kindness and the caring but you also have the firmness which is in between in the sandwich so you praise 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 then whatever comes in the middle is is the criticism or the feedback and then you go praise 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 and then you have the sandwich there so yeah a few suggestions okay and alcohol the question is how to help friends and family members mm. who are addicted to alcohol mm. we do have this audience from England with elaborated um, questions yes. that right. how can I support my daughter right. who is struggling with fears and anger at us having to go into another lockdown and has lost another job mm. because she worked in a public sector mm. and she is drinking on a daily basis. Mm. 
Yes, it is very, very difficult. And uh, also very often, if an addiction has become very, very strong, sometimes they also say a firm approach is important so that the person who is engaging in something realizes this is really serious. So that is one approach, but that usually happens very, very far down the track. And as I was saying before with addictions, what really kind of made sense to me when another person was talking about it is this kind of bonding. So you are bonding with a substance, but you're bonding with the wrong thing. You're bonding with something which gives you that energy, which gives you a bit of relief, but it doesn't solve the problem. So now if all the people that would be good influences because they're so frustrated, get out of the picture, the people engaging in the wrong bonding will engage even more in the wrong bonding. So then there, it is very important there to connect to those people with understanding, with kindness, with compassion on a, on a heart-to-heart level, um, showing them that you are available, that you are there for them, that you're supporting them, that you have an understanding that they are not their behavior. They have fallen into an unskillful behavior because they can't cope with whatever is happening. So you need to find a coping mechanism that is more wholesome and more conducive. And that starts with a safe environment. That starts with having people you can trust. That starts with people you can rely on. And if you can somehow try to send that signal to whoever is in trouble and to send them the signal that you are not judging them for their behavior, uh, you don't want to encourage it though, of course, because you know it goes into the wrong direction. But uh, you, you are there for them and you will try to carry them through it. What often helps as well is if they can get in contact with people who had an addiction and who are able to overcome that addiction and who can um, act as a mentor in that situation and who can actually understand what is going on in the person without judgment. Because judgment uh, leads again to more isolation and to more um, of the same behavior. So people have to realize that the behavior they're engaging in is not productive, is not healthy, and they have to see a way out. If they don't have an alternative, which is energizing, which is uplifting, which is uh, where they can feel that truth that I was talking about shining through and energizing them, they will revert to the quick fix (laughs) because the other fix is much more long-term. Also, if relapses happen, uh, very often, depending on what the substance is, what the abuse is uh, of the substance is, it, it, it will be part of the process. But please um, trust in goodness, trust in uh, the good influence um, that you and a group of people can have. As I was saying, I was part of a group of people who did a lot of physical activity, which bonded us together. We trusted each other um, because we were friends as well. And if those friends can be in a group 
which doesn't engage <laughs> because that's very often the difficult other part if you give up a certain behavior but you have a group of people who are still part of that scene so to speak it's very very difficult not to fall back into it so it is something that has to slowly slowly uh, been built up and of course now what we are feeling and experiencing is something we haven't dealt with for years and years and years and years because of the pandemic because of people losing work and all these kind of things happening now we are seeing that our strategies that we've used in the past uh, especially the wholesome ones are not strong and not uh, not ro robust enough um, to to cope with it to to handle handle it so we have to step by step slowly slowly um, build them up yeah it's a very difficult situation I hope uh, I could give you uh, a little bit of uh, a few ideas but basically just being there sticking it out with the other person and uh, giving them shelter giving them safety and giving them understanding and not judging them I think is important thank you Bandai you do have the very last question. Okay, good. From Yankee Apple. All right. <laughs> you said this was your last ESV live stream. Where are you going? And when you get there, are you going to give online Dharma talks? Thank you for all the talks you have given so far. Yes. Well, like everything else, I'm coming and I'm going. Like the breath going in and the breath going out. <laughs> I'm going back to Western Australia, so uh, I every now and then come to Newbury Buddhist Monastery, usually for three months. This one, uh, this time it was for six months. So I'm returning back to Bodhinyana, uh, where my teacher and preceptor is, Ajahn Brahm, and uh, where my other monastics friends, uh, other monastics, monastic friends live, if I can say correctly. Um, if you wish to uh, join a meditation day, which will be happening in a bit less than two weeks so saturday uh, or actually friday week in the evening we'll start and we'll have a whole day of uh, meditating together on zoom we have i think 65 people who have uh, registered so far but this time uh, we don't have a limit of 100 people we will ha could even have 500 people I, I don't think we will but we can go over 100 and people from all around the globe have joined uh, so please, uh, if you wish, join us for that. And even if you can't attend all the sessions on that retreat, that's not the point. I hope you can have a retreat at home and whatever we can provide to uh, um, help you with that in terms of meditation teachings. Uh, we have Q&A sessions, we have personal interviews, and we'll be sitting in the digital meditation hall together to encourage each other. So uh, whatever you can get out of that and whatever the world out there can get out of that uh, is is nice to see i've seen there's people from all over the world uh, someone from kenya and some people from europe and of course from australia as well in different time zones um, joining us for for that and then afterwards um yeah who knows <laughs> i'll be happy to have a bit more of a secluded lifestyle back in uh, bodhinyana again but uh, let's see let's see what happens thank you Monday. Message from BSV president. Oh, all right. Mm. You're sacked. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> Have good. a safe trip back to Bodhiana Monastery and looking forward to Bande return soon next year. Yes. Thanks. And so, from, from the vice president. Oh, as well. 
We all value all three Mondays, stay at MBM and all the teachings from MBM, safe journey back to Perth. Looking forward to the retreat of two Mondays. Yeah, so thanks a lot for the whole uh, uh, BSV committee as well and for the whole community here that support this place, that support the monastery and that also support the city center, which basically make it possible for people like us, monks and nuns who don't have a home, to find a temporary home and to hang out or to even find a more permanent home for people who are staying here permanently. There is not that many places for monks and nuns to go, so it's a very good cause to support places where monastics can go, where they can practice, and where they can hopefully gain some things that they can share with other people on this journey. So, good. Thanks very much. And uh, let's bow to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. What about tomorrow night? Oh, yes. Uh, tomorrow night at 7.30, there will be a meditation class. And uh, I'll be talking a little bit, uh, most likely, about uh, listening there as well, because I couldn't spend that much time on the precept of right speech or truthfulness. Okay, let's uh, finish. It's lunchtime here. <laughs>